This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our final week in our discussion of J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy book, The Hobbit. In uh, week one, we talked about the professor, his worldview to some degree. We got through chapter one of The Hobbit. In uh, week two, we introduced the idea of the secondary world. We introduced the Silmarillion and explored the world of Middle-earth, ending with the discovery of the ring. And last week, we traveled from the Misty Mountains all the way to the Lonely Mountain, where Bilbo meets and steals from Smaug. (laughs) We also discussed the famous relationship between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Christy, what's in store for our discussion this week? Well, obviously, we want to finish the book. And there is, of course, the big battle scene. Although Bilbo's conversations with Smaug may be my favorite part of the story. But the battle scenes are definitely the most exciting parts and they're fastest and easiest to read. I want to talk more about some of the thematic ideas that I find really interesting as we wrap up this book. Again, defying Tolkien's warning to not look for meaning. But you're going to persist. (laughs) Well, I'm an English teacher. That's just what we do. And there cannot be, though, a conversation about Tolkien. We can't conclude without talking about this element, video gaming. Video gaming. (laughs) Um, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, you're not much of a gamer. And since Tolkien died in 1973, I can't see that he was much of one as well either. Well, there is that. True. And I will confess that not embracing video gaming is, I'm sure, my loss. Because I do love games in general. I just have trouble with the technology. I don't want to reveal my age, but it is a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. We know that your age is a dark Middle-earth Elvish-style secret. Yes, it is. (laughs) But I I also want to say I didn't start out anti-video games, although I don't play much now. I played Pac-Man, River Raid, Donkey Kong, Asteroids. Did you play any of those? Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> but then the systems got complicated, and Nintendo had just way too many buttons. I, I quit. Well, you're, you're coming pretty close to giving away your age there. Um, <laughs> so what is the connection to Tolkien? I mean, we've mentioned more than once that he was anti-technology. Yes, he was very anti-technology, but I'm going to suggest that I think he would have made an exception for video games, although no one can know for sure. He's not around to defend himself. When we understand what Tolkien hated about technology, it kind of makes sense that he might make an exception. And the reason that I want to talk about it, ironically, is because there has been, and I don't even think this is arguable, any author that's made a bigger impact on the gaming industry than J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, what is gaming if it's not fantasy? True. But honestly, it goes back even before gaming. I was surprised to see that when uh, Morton Zimmerman, the screenwriter, as early as 1957, contacted Tolkien about making an animated movie about Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien wasn't opposed. He said this, As far as I'm concerned personally... I should welcome the idea of an animated motion picture with all of the risk of vulgarization. <laughs> vulgarization, yes. oh heavenly. Well, honestly, at first pass, that surprised me that he wasn't just unequivocally opposed. Uh, but it's not out of character when you understand how important or the importance that he places on the secondary world. I mean, Tolkien loved imagination. So it makes sense in some sense that he would like the idea of expanding it. Well, true, but only if you could do it right, which Zimmerman couldn't. <laughs> Oops. When Tolkien read Zimmerman's um, first detailed outline of the movie, he lost his mind. He called it extreme silliness and incompetence. He said this, uh, This document, as it stands, is sufficient to give me grave anxiety <laughs> about the actual dialogue that will be used. I should say Zimmerman is quite incapable of excerpting or adapting the spoken words of the book. He is hasty, insensitive, and impertinent. Impertinent? Oh, my. Well, what did Zimmerman do? Why that would merit such criticism? Oh, he, he committed the gravest of all sins. He only skimmed the books. And, Foul. And the details were wrong. And he'd mess up the names of wizards and all sorts of things that anyone who knows anything about Middle Earth would have known immediately. And you can't mess with the details of Middle Earth. No. He didn't get that crucial detail. <laughs> he didn't get what people loved about the series. And, Fail. And, but that's the beginning of the movies. And, and, and there are at least 12 Tolkien movies that I know of, uh, not to mention the new Amazon series. That just started production in New Zealand this year with a total price tag for the first season of $450 million. Is that a lot? Well, uh, com we'll compare it to the Game of Thrones. That topped out at $90 million a season, and, you know, it was no shabby affair. It was <laughs> no, I fairly don't think popular. it was. <laughs> anyway, it, it's amazing how Middle Earth inspires, but... Back to the game industry, uh, it knew better than the movie industry that the importance of getting it right in creating secondary worlds and how important that was, be it Game of Thrones or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or any other uh, number of video adaptations. Well, true. And let me add that our friend The Hobbit was one of the early attempts way back in the 80s to get it right with video gaming. The medium of gaming itself provides really just in general for a deep imaginative engagement for re for gamers, not readers, for gamers. 
And that's what people love about gaming. I mean, I have students that talk about it all the time. So if you love Tolkien and you love his world, well, it just makes sense. What better way would it be to look around his world through a video game? And the technology has advanced to allow you to be able to do that. And Tolkien's games have advanced with it. Gary, we do need to make a confession. You know, we're not big gamers. And up until a couple of weeks ago, we hadn't done any real work or even played around with virtual reality. Not even as much as a headset. But that changed. Are you going to out us? Yes, I think we should out us. Tell us, tell the tell the world what we did. <laughs> well, we were on vacation and we were touring Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and uh, which is something we'll talk about in another episode later on. But anyway, at Pearl Harbor, part of the attraction there uh, is that you can put on a virtual reality headset, and they have this really cool opportunity for you to virtually go below the surface of the water and explore what the USS Arizona looks like in its current state through this VR technology. For me, it was so weird. I mean, I put on this headset, and we're literally on the pavement in the visitor center, and we're walking around physically in circles, but in our minds, in our heads, we're under the ocean, totally immersed in the sights and the sounds of underwater life. I mean, I really liked it. (laughs) I have to admit, I loved it too. And it helped me to see how amazing it would be if you could do that in Middle Earth. I mean, uh, walk where you want to walk and explore the mountains, get lost in the forest with the spiders, talk to Smaug. (laughs) Well, that's what you can do. And with the internet, now the games interact with each other. So you can go there with your friends. You and all your friends can be hobbits or elves or I don't know actually remember how the interface goes and you don't have to live in the same town you can do all these things together and there are games for kids like legos the hobbit but i looked it up and if you go to screenrant.com you can find the top 10 yes no less top 10 lord of the ring games and how they're ranked and what all they can do and what they can't do and i'll, I'll tell you a heads up lord of the rings return of the king is ranked number one just in case you're interested. <laughs> okay. So give it to us the numbers. How well-liked are these video games? Uh, I would say they're very well-liked. Money, Inc. has estimated that officially licensed video games and the merchandise that goes with it has earned, check this out, something in the neighborhood of 10 to $15 billion. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> no kidding. Having said that... One of the challenges that has taken video games decades to figure out is how they could respectfully, you know, respecting the the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien, create the world, make the game fun, and at the same time, honor the narrative and the legacy of the author. In other words, you can't just rewrite The Hobbit. So trying to get this worked out has pitted the game creators against the Tolkien estate for years at every turn. It's fascinating. You can Google the history of gaming and the Lord of the Rings, and you can just read all about it. There's pages and pages of what has gone on between these two parties to try to create this perfect environment. But the main thing that the gamers had to consider is that a lot of video games, this comes as no surprise to anyone, are about war. But in the case of Tolkien, although there are fighting orcs and Saruman and Sauron and all that, 
Tolkien's books don't center necessarily around the war. They center around the journey. So the games had to make peace with that. And how do you do that and be fun? Because, you know, shooting's easy. Right. <laughs> Tolkien is not all blood, uh, but he has a lot of it. Oh, I guess that's one way it differs from Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There are other creative differences with the Tolkien estate, but... Well, at the end of the day, what Tolkien called the secondary world, um, new media theorists call immersion. But both are psychologically experiencing another world. And I just want to point out, we've got an old school writer who's being given complete responsibility for a new world technology. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, But the result in 2012... the Lego's Hobbit game was called The Hobbit Kingdoms of Middle-Earth, and it la- launched for Android and the iOS, and it uses the basic plot of The Hobbit to guide players without necessarily a straightforward retelling of the story. So in the game, you're in the company of dwarves, and they're sneaking around trying to reclaim their homeland, which is, you know, what the book is about. But the game also allows players to team up against, you know, Middle-Earth foes, just like Tolkien heroes. They tried to get it right. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's super interesting. Um, But getting away from the video games and back to Middle-Earth itself, where we left off, we were no longer watching a bunch of traveling dwarves heading to a mountain. We were watching these same dwarves plunge themselves into a war with the men of Dale and the elves over the treasure in the mountain. Yes, and although we didn't mention it on the podcast, if you've read those chapters, you know that Bilbo has a secret, and it's not the disappearing ring. He has stolen the Arkenstone. (laughs) It's the treasure of all treasures, the one Thorin wants above all else. And let me quote from chapter 12. The Arkenstone, the Arkenstone. It was like a globe with a thousand facets. It shone with silver in the firelight, like water in the sun, like snow under the stars, like rain upon the moon. On the moon? (laughs) I don't know. That's what Thorne says. In chapters 13, when the dwarves finally discover all their treasure deep inside the mountain, Thorne looks for it everywhere, but he can't find it, and he won't find it. Because Bilbo found it first and put it in his pocket. <laughs> hmm. well, I guess he's a real burglar now. Those pockets hold some real secrets. Exactly. That's exactly what he thinks. Let's read that part where Bilbo slips the Arkenstone into his pocket. It was the Arkenstone, the heart of the mountain. So Bilbo guessed from Thorne's description, but indeed there could not be two such gems, even in so marvelous a horde, even in all the world. Ever as he climbed, the same white gleam had shone before him and drawn his feet towards it. Slowly it grew to a little globe of pallid light. Now as he came near, it was tinged with a flickering sparkle of many colors at the surface, reflected and splintered from the wavering light of his torch. At last he looked down upon it, and he caught his breath. The great jewel shone before his feet of its own inner light, and yet cut and fashioned by the dwarves who had dug it from the heart of the mountain long ago. It took all light that fell upon it and changed it into 10,000 sparks of white radiance, shot with the glints of the rainbow. Suddenly, Bilbo's arm went towards it, drawn by its enchantment. 
His small hand would not close about it, for it was a large and heavy gem, but he lifted it, shut his eyes, and put it in his deepest pocket. Now I am a burglar indeed, he thought, but I suppose I must tell the dwarves about it sometime. They did say I could pick and choose my own share, and I think I would choose this if they took all the rest. All the same, he had an uncomfortable feeling that the picking and choosing had not really been meant to include this marvelous gem and that trouble would yet come of it. So what's special about it? Why does he want it? I mean, is it magical or something? (laughs) Well, from a narrative perspective, it kind of serves as an interesting transition point in the story. And this is where old Harold Bloom, my favorite critic, comes down on Tolkien and thinks that Tolkien's not really writing a novel. This is a fairy tale, and and maybe he's right. I'm sure he's right. That's a longer conversation. But the criticism centers around this very simplistic dichotomy that Tolkien sets up with good versus evil. So far, uh, there is no discussion about what makes things good or evil. They're obviously one or the other. Trolls are inherently evil. Goblins are inherently evil. Spiders are inherently evil. Although I know some people don't agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you do. Well, yeah. Uh, But I will say, Tolkien had an unfortunate encounter with a spider when he was a kid in South Africa. So he may have some legitimate trauma here. But at the end of the day, the dragon is clearly and unequivocally and unquestionably, albeit a little charming in his own way, evil. (laughs) We're not confused about any of that but now we're going to start to see conflict between groups that looks like evil is emerging but these are groups of people that are supposed to be good men elves dwarves they're good gandalf is going to say later on in the lord of the rings this nothing is evil in the beginning not even sauron so we're going to start to see a little complication in this simplistic dichotomy that Tolkien has set up all the way up to this point in the book. Well, then what is making people evil? Why are people suddenly doing bad things? What makes a Sauron become a Sauron or a troll become a troll or an orc become an orc or a Smaug become a (laughs) Smaug? What do these things have in common that have corrupted them? Well, I want to say one thing about the simplicity of the good versus evil dichotomy right here. This was originally written as a children's book, correct? Yes, exactly. Well, if you pay attention to children's books or you watch children's TV shows, they don't like you confusing the characters. Yeah. They want the good to be dependably good, the bad to be dependably bad, and even if the story's predictable, that's fine. You have to be older to appreciate the nuance of gray areas and characters. And yet, here in Lord of the Rings, he throws a wrench for the kiddos. Now you've got this confusion in the last couple chapters Mm -hmm. of the book. Well, uh, does Tolkien land on the biblical teaching that uh, the love of money is the root of evil? I mean, is it greed? Uh, Is that a problem for Thorin here? Yeah, and that would be a very simple dichotomy that even a child can understand. I mean, kids are selfish. No no disrespect, kids, but it's it's all of us. (laughs) But they are. But that would be too simplistic, and it's too moralizing and too obvious, even for Tolkien and even for a children's book. and. I guess maybe in a sense that's a little bit of it, but let's make it a little bit more complicated. What he's trying to do 
is more obvious in the Lord of the Rings series because, well, for one thing, it's like very long. So he develops the idea more completely in a trilogy as opposed to just trying to flesh it out simplistically in a children's story. But his philosophy, his worldview is here in baby form. Uh, Lots of people suggest, and I think I kind of agree with them, that The Hobbit, by the way, is Tolkien's masterpiece. (laughs) But, you know, that's an argument for another day. Anyway, for Tolkien, true evil is associated with power and the desire to grow your power. Tolkien saw power, especially power over others, as, you know, man's real problem. So in The Hobbit, this is a very obvious representation. Yes, it's a children's book. So power is represented by literal material possession, something very tangible. Material equals power in an obvious way which is kind of the paradox of the entire quest, because the only reason the doors want to go on the quest is to restore the power of their birthright, the treasure, their place in the world. When they get there, Smaug is very lazy, although slightly charming, I must add, for an <laughs> for antagonist, a for a dragon. He is only roused from his nothingness when his material territory is invaded. And so what we see in the rest of this story is a power struggle. But before we get into that, I want to play this out a little more for those of you who are familiar with The Lord of the Rings and kind of show you how it develops in that book because it's an expanded version of The Hobbit for adults, if you want to think of it that way. The plot's the exact same. Hobbit leaves home, goes on a quest, has a battle. (laughs) (laughs) The plot. Yeah, the plot really is uncomplicated. No, it's just not very complicated. But this concept of power is more complicated in that he chooses to represent it with the ring. And the ring is a more sophisticated and kind of a more, um, I don't know, complicated. I mentioned on a different episode that I watched this really interesting interview. It's on YouTube if you're interested with Christopher Tolkien about his father And in the interview, he said that for Tolkien, the ring represented technology. The problem Tolkien had with technology, and this is why I don't think he would mind video games, uh, is that technology, the primary purpose of technology is to create a tool to create power. So in And so it makes things, it makes you as an individual more powerful. And so you can use it to ensnare other people. The more complex and the sophisticated the technology, the more any one person or any one group of people can empower themselves over others, enslaving the world. He said, I thought this was interesting, that technology took human slavery in its most obvious form and hid it inside of a factory or places where you couldn't see it, but it never eliminated it. And this was something that he, that was his, you know, problem with the world. And The Hobbit, when we meet goblins or orcs, you know, look how he describes them. And I didn't point this out in another episode because I was saving it for this one. But when he describes goblins, this is what he says. They make no beautiful things. They at least make many clever ones. Cleverness or ingenuity is something that 
is positive. It's good for problem solving. Mechanical solutions solve the problems of the physical world, sort of. But for Tolkien, they create their own problems. Tolkien even makes it a point to say, and this is an aside that he makes in the book that really has nothing to do with the story, the goblins are said to have invented some of the machines that have since troubled the world, ingenious devices that make use of wheels and engines and explosions. So like us, you know, orcs are interested in saving labor. They're described as not working with their own hands more than they could help it. Exactly like what we do. (laughs) But uh, they don't save labor in order to use their time to develop human connections, the kind of thing that Tolkien valued. Their slothfulness, well, the slothfulness of the goblins or the orcs, is sinister. It's power-obsessed. It's territory-obsessed. It's also insatiable. You can never have enough slothfulness. You can never have enough you know, material possessions. So whatever labor cannot be done by machines, the orcs had no problem making people into slaves and they would have them work till they die for want of air and light. That comes right out of The Hobbit. Tolkien's narrator passes judgment on these ambitious goblins and their entire value system. It's obvious that it's evil. It's wicked. He calls it bad-hearted. Well, we have seen that played out tenfold uh, these days with what we're able to do with technology. I mean, we have saved a lot of effort and physical labor through technology, but I don't know if we use our free time in um, what we might call a Hobbit-approved way. (laughs) I don't think more of us are using our time with things like learning guitar and having outside parties or any of the simple things as Tolkien describes them. Exactly. I mean... Actually, the more technology we have, I find myself busier and busier. And he, he would have never imagined a world with Instagram accounts and trackers on your phone and digital passports and contract tracing and, you know, all of the things that have come out of the last couple of years for us. He'd be horrified and not because he doesn't like convenience, but he thought it was dangerous. He thought the power that technology gave us corrupted even people of the most goodwill. When Gandalf says he won't touch the ring, and this is out of Lord of the Rings, he says because it would make him more wicked than Sauron. He thinks that the power, in if he had it, would be just as evil because he would be self-righteous. And self-righteousness is the worst kind of wickedness for Tolkien. It's the most obvious or I guess the most unobvious form of evil the one ring to rule them all that means just that the technological power to have total control and it doesn't matter your motives by definition no matter how good or evil you are that is total evil so We're going to take that idea that we're all familiar with, with the Lord of the Rings, and we're going to scale it back to this simpler way of looking at it that we see in The Hobbit. But it's really the same thing. Well, everybody wants the treasure. (laughs) and uh, You're right. (laughs) And and they're ready to kill for it. Uh, Men, dwarves, orcs, everybody. It's funny what they call it. Uh, They call it the dragon sickness. And the master of Lake Town is the first one to succumb to the dragon sickness, and he steals treasure 
intended for the relief of the inhabitants, and he dies alone in the wilderness. Yes, that's too bad. (laughs) But what's worse than that is Thorin. He and Bilbo are friends. But when he finds out that Bilbo has given the Arkenstone to Bard, he loses his mind. Let's read that part, because it's... If you've read the story up to this part when they've been just friends, you're just kind of shocked. You, you, cried Thorn, turning upon him and grasping him with both hands. You miserable hobbit, you undersized burglar. He shouted at a loss for words, and he shook poor Bilbo like a rabbit. By the beard of Durin, I wish I had Gandalf here. Curse him for his choice of you. May his beard wither. As for you, I will throw you to the rocks, he cried, and lifted Bilbo in his arms. Stay, your wish is granted, said a voice. The old man with the casket threw aside his hood and cloak. Here is Gandalf, and none too soon, it seems. If you don't like my burglar, please don't damage him. Put him down and listen first to what he has to say. You all seem in league, said Thorn, dropping Bilbo on the top of the wall. Never again will I have dealings with any wizard or his friends. What have you to say, you descendant of rats? Dear me, dear me, said Bilbo. I am sure this is all very uncomfortable. You may remember saying that I might choose my own fourteenth share. Perhaps I took it too literally. I have been told that dwarves are sometimes politer in word than in deed. The time was, all the same, when you seemed to think that I had been of some service. Descended of rats, indeed? Is this all the service of you and your family that I was promised, Thorn? Take it that I have disposed of my share as I wished, and let it go at that. I will, said Thorn grimly, and I will let you go at that, and may we never meet again. Then he turned and spoke over the wall. I am betrayed, he said. It was rightly guessed that I could not forbear to redeem the Arkenstone, the treasure of my house. For it I will give one fourteenth share of the hoard in silver and gold, setting aside the gems, but that shall be accounted the promised share of this traitor, and with that reward he shall depart, and you can divide it as you will. He will get little enough, I doubt not. Take him if you wish him to live, and no friendship of mine goes with him. Get down now to your friends, he said to Bilbo, or I will throw you down. What about the gold and silver, asked Bilbo. That shall follow after, as can be arranged, said he. Get down. Until then, we keep the stone, cried Bard. You are not making a very splendid figure as king under the mountain, said Gandalf. But things may change yet. It's so harsh and mean. I mean, after they've gone through so much. I know, but Thorn has the dragon sickness. <laughs> mm. Like Smaug, like Gollum, like trolls, like orcs, like everybody. <laughs> so why is a hobbit such a pure creature? How does he escape corruption? I mean, it appears men and elves and dwarves, they're all ready to fight. I know, and here Bilbo is giving up 14th of his treasure just to have peace. But it's funny that you should ask because, you know, Tolkien has a has a point there. Uh, and it's another weird Tolkien thing. And once again, it reflects on his Christianity and, and the theology that's deeply rooted in his worldview. Uh, it's Tolkien's source, by the way, for these sets of values, although 
Christianity isn't the only philosophy or worldview that share these values. But Tolkien, as many people know, was an avid environmentalist. And I know that sounds like a tangent, but look how it fits together. Uh, And this is way before, by the way, we knew about global warming or anything like that. And he hated the smokestack factories where he grew up in Birmingham and the destruction of the English countryside and industrialization and urbanization and all those things. But anyway, Tolkien believed that the earth belonged to God and everything about the earth was good and connected to God. Tolkien believed that man's job, as described in the very first book of the Bible, his main responsibility is to take care of the earth, God's creation. So here's Tolkien's thinking. The closer you are to nature, the closer you are to God, the closer you are to goodness. So look at hobbits. They're very close to earth. They live in the ground, in hobbit holes. They're very small in stature. Their lifestyle is very simple. So that makes them less able to be corrupt. Tolkien saw humans as stewards of the earth. And you're going to see this uh, in his stories. So the closer you are, the less likely you are to be corrupt. At the end of the book, you know, we, we just saw Bilbo surrenders all of his treasure, not because he needs to, but he doesn't even care that much about it. For him, the Arkenstone is nothing. Well, and of course, don't forget uh, when he slips out in the middle of the night to give the Arkenstone to Bard, he does it because he really doesn't care about it at all. Exactly. You know, in 1973, there's this man by the name of E.F. Schumacher, and he published a uh, a collection of essays in a book that he called Small is Beautiful. You knew I'd like that title. (laughs) But it's a study of economics as if people mattered. And the book was really impactful. It had a social impact and it actually kind of inspired the entire green movement. So there you go. That It's Hobbit-like. (laughs) I mean, the the greener you are, the simpler you are, the more connected to the earth you are, the more likely you are to feel embedded in community. Tolkien would say, you're harder to corrupt by evil. I don't know. It's obvious. Uh, I'm not going to deny that everyone can be corrupted. (laughs) Uh, No doubt. And as in all things, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And as soon as the goblins and the wolves show up, all the problems are forgotten. And it was kind of fun to see every set of creatures from the entire book. I mean, from the eagles to Bjorn to the elves, everyone played a role in winning this final battle. Yeah, the final battle is really, really exciting. And I love the parlay. I mean, all that kind of... When they say parlay, I always think of Pirates of the Caribbean. But (laughs) from the parlay onward between Bard and Thor and all the way to when Bilbo almost gets in trouble because he hides by like not wearing his ring so he doesn't get killed in the war and then they can't find him after it's all over. Uh, But, you know, in that final scene, what you see is... All the races, and and remember, people think, well, this is, they're all the same. They're all British, English, white people, but they're not. He's made up all these different races, eagles and birds and all these things from mythology, and they're uniting. And what are they uniting against? Technology. Technology was what was pitting them against each other. 
technology, the power, the desire for power, that's the problem. Make of it what you will, but that's Tolkien's warning and experience that he had in the modern world. <laughs> and he was saying this over 100 years ago. Interesting. <laughs> uh, and all of that's a total reflection of his experience with World War One. But that makes it no less true today. Exactly. And, and so we're left uh, with the ending when Bilbo returns to the Shire and Bag in. And by the way, I should have said this before the, the last episode, uh, but we're all the way through the book. And I noticed that the name... The Shire is not ever used. <laughs> I know. We've been calling it that the whole time, and it's not called that until Lord of the Rings 12 years later. Uh, but that's the problem when you know the books better than the <laughs> guy who wrote them when he wrote them. The Shire, whatever it's called, is our entry point into the secondary world, and it's also going to end up being our exit point. It's the kind of place that a lot of us can relate to. It's a kind of average place, a place where a little regular person like me could maybe imagine becoming a hero. And that creates a happy ending. A lot of what we know about Tolkien's ideas for storytelling and imagination come from the essays that he wrote. And of course, his most famous one, one of the most famous ones that I've referred to before is called On Fairy Stories. And in this essay, he's going to argue that fairy stories are not solely for children. He believed that creating fantasy uh, was important in terms of being a human. It was part of our God-likeness. And he believed that God created man in his image. And what does that mean? That man can create. Man can create his own world. And that's what fantasy is. However, Tolkien also says this in this essay, that all fairy tales should have a happy ending. And he calls it a eucatastrophe. <laughs> a what? <laughs> I know, I'm not even sure I can say it. Eucatastrophe, a happy ending. And by a happy ending, he means an ending of redemption. He believed that all stories must end in happiness and in redemption. And I love that because I hate <laughs> sad stories. Fantasy stories redeem something, something that was lost, something that was corrupt. And the final scene, you know, we see all these heroes. There's quite a few heroes. There's obviously Bard. Uh, there's Bjorn, the shape-shifting bear. He's the best. Uh, but the greatest hero is the one that redeems. And that's Bilbo, the ordinary guy who takes on the responsibility he didn't even ask for and redeems the world who had lost something. When we get to the end, uh, Bilbo returns and he finds out that there was a personal cost to his adventure, as there always is. And nobody back home cared. They had stolen from him. They don't understand him anymore, but he doesn't really seem to mind Um he was a small player in something greater, a redemption story. And to him, that made it all worth it. Yes. And in honor of that, we should read the last page of the book, The Happy Ending. It's years later. Bilbo's been in the Shire now for quite some time. And one day, he gets a visit. One autumn evening, some years afterwards, Bilbo was sitting in his study writing his memoirs. 
He thought of calling them there and back again, a hobbit's holiday, when there was a ring at the door. It was Gandalf and a dwarf, and a dwarf was actually Balin. Come in, come in, said Bilbo, and soon they were settled in chairs by the fire. If Balin noticed that Mr. Baggins' waistcoat was more extensive and had had real gold buttons, Bilbo also noticed that Balin's beard was several inches longer, and his jeweled belt was of great magnificence. They fell to talking other times together, of course, and Bilbo asked how things were going in the lands of the mountain. It seemed they were going very well. Bard had rebuilt the town and dale, and men had gathered to him from the lake and from south and west, and all the valley had become tilled again and rich, and the desolation was now filled with birds and blossoms in spring and fruit and feasting in autumn. And Lake Town was refounded and was more prosperous than ever, and much wealth went up and down the running river, and there was friendship in those parts between elves and dwarves and men. The old master had come to a bad end. Bard had given him much gold for the help of the lake people, but being of the kind that easily catches such disease, he fell under the dragon sickness and took most of the gold and fled with it, and died of starvation in the waste deserted by his companions. The new master is of wiser kind, said Balin, and very popular for, of course, he gets most of the credit for the present prosperity. They're making songs which say that in his day the rivers run with gold. Then the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, said Bilbo. Of course, said Gandalf, and why should not they prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Thank goodness, said Bilbo, laughing, and handed him the tobacco jar. <laughs> it's a eucastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> For Tolkien, your story isn't over until you're redeemed. You've been part of an adventure. Your life isn't over until that's happened. So keep walking, keep fighting, keep Killing the slaying the dragon until the eucastrophe is in the works. It's a nice idea. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, thank you all for being with us through this series on The Hobbit. We've really enjoyed it. Uh, and we always like to ask you to text an episode to a friend and bring them in on the fun times that we're having reading these books. Uh, check us out on our social media pages. Check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And once again, thanks for being with us. Peace out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.